0: Hello and welcome to the very first episode of the Abominable Dr. Welsh Horror Movie Podcast. This is the companion podcast to the blog. The blog's been up and running since about January 2018. It has lots of film reviews, analyses of bigger horror movies, lists. The podcast will take a somewhat similar approach. The, the big difference is I'm hoping to publish uh, a new episode at least every week if not bi-weekly each episode will typically focus on kind of one kind of issue bigger question some kind of you know point of focus uh I, i'd like to finish off with kind of mini capsule reviews with the kind of the fuller reviews being available on the blog itself so for this very first episode i decided to start off with a softball um, by that i don't mean something that's straightforward or easy but something that i've thought a lot about so it was going to kind of starting place for me and that's looking at halloween ends the uh capper or conclusion to the new trilogy that the legacy 2018 legacy sequel kicked off so Halloween ends when it released on October 14th of last year was a box office success by all measures definitely exceeded its you know, production budget but it absolutely polarized fans the first thing I'll just clarify before we kind of get into the meat of the episode is that uh, on social media, anyone that's kind of actively present in horror communities have probably seen this. It, it, obviously, people differ in their opinions about what movies they like, which movies they enjoy, and that's perfectly fine. That's diversity is is ideal. If we all like the same thing, life would be pretty boring but for those people that have professed you know a love for Halloween ends they face they have faced uh, quite a bit of criticism online uh, harassment and that's not something I encourage at all people are more than welcome to like the movies that they like no one has to justify it that being said the position I'm taking in this episode of the podcast is as the episode summary suggests what went wrong with Halloween ends so uh, of the three movies, I, I definitely thought it was disappointing, and there were you know a few things that really kind of uh, even on rewatching it a few months later when it made its Blu-ray Blu-ray release, it, you know, my opinions kind of were, bit, were even more entrenched. So seeing it more than once didn't didn't help. It just kind of solidified the feeling that something just didn't work. So Halloween Ends faced a lot of criticism. Like I said in the introduction, it was definitely polarizing. So while it has its supporters and its lovers, the general consensus among critics and fans of the, not just horror, but the Halloween franchise specifically weren't very happy with the end results. And there's the elephant in the room, which we'll get to in the next segment. But there is a smaller problem that I thought really plagued Halloween Ends that I don't think a lot of people have picked up on. And that was really the necessity of the sequel itself. That is, in a, in a lot of ways, the creative team behind the new Halloween trilogy. So that's director and writer David Gordon Green. Uh, three other writers are credited with Halloween ends. Dan, Danny McBride has is, is contributed, I think, to all three of the, the new sequels. And then you have Chris Burmey and Paul Brad Logan. What I mean by the necessity is that when Halloween 2018 came out, and when it was initially, the production was initially announced uh, by Bloomhouse Productions, there was a lot of skepticism. When David Gordon Green's name was attached, along with Danny McBride's, they're not known for horror films. Uh, once John Carpenter agreed to do the score for the film, that seemed to be almost like kind of an, an implicit tag of approval. They brought back Jamie Lee Curtis. They even went so far as to bring back Nick Castle uh, to play the shape in some scenes. So the kind of back-to-basics approach, although initially kind of skewed fans, people bought into it pretty fast, and the results that were put on screen were really convincing. Halloween, the the 2018 Legacy sequel, felt like a, a spiritual successor to John Carpenter's original vision. And I don't just mean by erasing the existence of all the sequels in between. It felt, in terms of tone and aesthetics, it felt like a sequel. Obviously, the budget was more up-to-date, the editing was was sharper or crisp, but it felt like a direct sequel to Halloween, uh, the, the 1978 Halloween, in terms of its tone. Even narratively, it actually was a sequel that felt like it needed to exist. The story, its focus on... Jamie Lee Curtis's Laurie Strode, her trauma, her her recovery, that kind of cathartic confrontation in the film's final act really was a satisfying character arc. And in fact, I would challenge people to think of any kind of slasher series or individual slasher films that have had that kind of depth to characters, that much attention uh, to a character arc. And Jamie Lee Curtis's performance was fantastic. But that final climax or confrontation between Michael Myers and Laurie Strode, which was 40 years in the making, felt very satisfying. Uh, There are bits and pieces in the middle of the movie that may not work, but overall the 2018 Legacy sequel was a really successful way to revisit the original while also offering a satisfying conclusion to a story that again was 40 years in the making. Not surprisingly, the movie ends with kind of a hint that there might be a sequel. You can't blame uh, producers and studios for wanting to make money. And once Halloween 2018 was both a critical and a financial success, sequels were all but guaranteed. For some reason, the trilogy seems to be the natural go-to for all film franchises uh, until the third movie is, uh, is a success. And they just have endless sequels, but for some reason, we all seem to think that a trilogy is just the natural extension of a successful uh, initial movie. Uh, I've always felt, for example, in Wes Craven's Scream Three, where they look at the rules of a trilogy, that that was a bit of um, it was a bit inaccurate. There really are no genuine or true horror movie trilogies, and in fact, I would suggest, from a narrative perspective, there are a lot of real trilogies. There are certainly three movies in certain franchises, it doesn't mean that they all kind of coexist or are cohesively uh, kind of bound together by a, a good story. So the, the decision to do a trilogy automatically made the first sequel, Halloween Kills, uh, it, it automatically put it in a difficult position because really one of the main problems with that sequel is it feels like it's it's all set up. That is, it's, it's putting everything, particularly Laurie Strode's story, in a holding pattern until they get to that third movie. There were a few other problems with Halloween Kills, and it's it's a good sequel, and it's a decent addition to the Halloween franchise. It's I would still say it's one of the, the better of the Halloween sequels, but tonally, it takes a very different direction from the 2018 Legacy sequel. It actually feels a bit more like it's connected tonally and in terms of its its presentation of violence to Rob Zombie's remake and the sequel to his remake, it's a much nastier, uh, more violent, explicitly violent sequel than Halloween 2018 was. I mean, obviously, there's violence in it, but the the legacy sequel felt a little more connected to John Carpenter's original vision, whereas Halloween Kills feels like it diverts a little bit. By virtue of sidelining Jamie Lee Curtis' Laurie Strode for almost the entirety of the film, the focus was then put on a lot of minor characters in Haddonfield. In some ways, there's almost a Fargo-esque tone to some of the eccentric characters that pop up. And as much as we may have enjoyed some of these supporting characters, uh, Big and Little John uh, probably being the best examples, it's not what people really were coming to a Halloween sequel for. Now, the interesting thing where Halloween Kills ends and before it leads into Halloween ends is the depiction of Michael Myers in that final climax. The legacy sequel goes to great lengths to really, although he is the shape of kind of that almost mythical source of fear, he is still very much a man. So the legacy sequel strays away from kind of the 80s, slasher sequel approach to where villains almost become supernatural, even if they are not really supernatural. But the end of Halloween Kills, you have Michael Myers receive, you know, a pretty severe beating from a Haddonfield mob only to get back up and kill everyone. A lot of fans on Reddit forums, on Twitter, began debating just exactly what this would mean for the final entry in the trilogy. Was the sequel going to lean into that kind of almost supernatural aspect to slasher villains that traditionally popped up in subsequent sequels? Some fans even speculated that perhaps what David Gordon Green and the rest of his creative team were going to do was somehow work in that kind of... um, uh, the Black Sheep of the Halloween franchise, Halloween 3, Season of the Witch, that somehow they were going to work in the shamrock masks Masks into Halloween ends. Other fans speculated that perhaps somehow the creative team was going to work in that idea of the, the cult of Thorn from Halloween, uh, the curse of Michael Myers. Thankfully, they didn't do that. But there was a lot of speculation about what directions Halloween ends would take, uh, of course, it didn't take any of those directions. It went off in a completely unexpected and very different creative direction, which we're going to get into in a few minutes. But the problem for Halloween ends is that Halloween, the 2018 Legacy sequel, really did provide what should have been the definitive conclusion to Lori Strode's story. The 2018 Legacy sequel made money, therefore they decided we're going to you know, continue to make sequels, and they decided, well, let's... What I would assume is they probably decided, well, let's take what worked in that movie, and let's make sure all those components are back, including the presence of Lori Strode. It's a lot like what happened with Buffy the Vampire Slayer. So if you're a fan and watched that series during its original run, when season five was coming to an end, and the series was going to finish its time on the CW network where it was housed and and switch over to what was called the UPN network. Season five ends on really what would have been a very satisfying conclusion for for Buffy Summers. Uh, She sacrifices herself for her friends and for humanity, and she dies a hero, of course, because a contract had been signed to continue the series on another network. We got the very kind of polarizing, you know, Generally speaking, fans either rank Season 6 of Buffy or Season 4 as their least favorite ones. Uh, Joss Whedon and his creative team did eventually come up with a a second finale for the seventh season that was, though not as good as the Season 5 finale, still somewhat satisfying. So a, A similar problem comes up with Halloween ends. We've already been given a good conclusion, a good ending to Laurie Strode's story. We sideline her for Halloween Kills. Now they have to come up with another good, definitive, satisfying ending to really a story that's now extended beyond 40 years. So obviously Halloween fans will probably disagree, and I'm happy to have more Halloween movies. All I'm saying is, is that the writing team, the creative team behind Halloween Ends already had an uphill battle to give fans yet another satisfying conclusion to a character's story when they had already done it in the first legacy sequel. Obviously the, the major criticism that Halloween ends faced from critics and to a large extent, from its own fan base, was the introduction of Rohan Campbell's Corey Cunningham to the Halloween franchise and Halloween canon. This is not a criticism of Rohan Campbell. His performance was excellent. And there's an argument to be made that there is an interesting idea. But what Halloween, for those, I'm assuming most people, I'm, I'm not spoiling anything, if you're listening to this podcast, you've seen the title, odds are you have seen Halloween Ends. Uh, you you probably have your opinions, you either really liked it, um, which a handful of people did, or you really didn't like it, which apparently quite a few people did not. Why does the introduction of a new character who becomes the focal point of the story, why does that not work? Really, the simplest answer is, is that that's not what people wanted to see. And to some extent, you have to give credit to to David Gordon Green, to Danny McBride, and the other writers for taking a risk, because too often we see... Uh, large big budgeted franchises whether it's the the Marvel cinematic Universe um, uh, DC other big horror franchises recycling what they know will work playing it safe and just taking very familiar story components and you know making very minor modifications uh, and, and keep sticking to a formula for Halloween ends the, the creative team takes a big risk they they don't give, the standard sequel that you would expect they go off in a very different creative direction and to some extent you you feel a bit bad for being critical because it would be nice to see more filmmakers uh in every genre be willing to take risks unfortunately doing something different doesn't mean it worked uh risk the term itself implies that there's a chance even a small chance that you're going to fail and the addition of the Corey cunningham character just does not work the theme behind it the idea that a bad thing in a community can traumatize not only the victims but the community itself is a really interesting idea and it's something that's embedded definitely in halloween kills although the repetitive you know evil dies tonight did eventually become a meme and you can even see bits of it at, a, at an individual character, character level in halloween 2018 that opening montage uh, following uh, the accident that sets Corey Cunningham's, sto- uh, Corey Cunningham's story in motion. So the montage of the different ways in which residents of Haddonfield have been traumatized by Michael Myers' uh, now two-killing sprees is really effective. In fact, it might be one of the better parts of the movie. It, it, you couldn't even make an argument if you made a top ten list of scenes from the Halloween franchise. It should at least be worthy of consideration. It's, it's a very effective, potent moment. If you actually took that theme, that idea, the character of Corey Cunningham, and you made a, a slasher film that wasn't called Halloween Ends, that wasn't attached to the franchise, that didn't come with the baggage of all those expectations, that didn't have a character named Michael Myers, some other killer maybe, you know, an original idea, that movie would probably be very compelling. Unfortunately... The character, the theme, does come with all the expectations and baggage that comes along with making uh, an entry to a long-standing franchise. On top of the fact that Halloween Ends is a part of a a franchise that's gone on for over 40 years, the creative team had the challenge of providing, as I mentioned before, a second satisfying ending to a specific story uh, that is Laurie Strode's arc that started in 1978 that was rekindled in the 2018 legacy sequel that they now have to end. And that's what fans wanted to see. If you rewatch or take a look on YouTube or other entertainment sites and you look at the promotional materials, it's pretty clear that's what the produ- the production company wanted to see as well. Uh, you could make the argument that some of the storyline of Halloween ends was concealed for some surprises But I would also make the argument that the studio probably also really wanted to emphasize that final confrontation between Michael Myers and Laurie Strode because they knew that was where the ticket sales were going to come from. While it's unfair, sometimes when you're playing in a a pre-existing sandbox, uh, an intellectual property or franchise while there might be some wiggle room to do different things, there's probably those boundaries, those parameters that you have to work within. And David Gordon Green and company had to work within those parameters. Audiences were paying money to see uh, Laurie Strode's final confrontation with Michael Myers. Instead, what we get for a large chunk of the film is a focus on a character who has no existing history anywhere in any of the Halloween movies who is introduced immediately in that introductory scene. Michael Myers uh, is sidelined for the majority of the film. And you can get into some of the other narrative problems in Halloween Ends. Probably the most obvious one is that Halloween Kills teases the idea that this is almost like that supernatural slasher villain that we remember from all those sequels to different slasher franchises from the 1980s. Yet, when we find him five years later... So there's that five year gap in between the events of Halloween Ends or Halloween Kills and Halloween Ends. We find Michael Myers uh, sick, weakened to the point where you know an older teenager or a young adult can forcibly take his mask. It's not what fans want to see. And again, there's that set of expectations that comes with playing and using a character that people are familiar with, like a Michael Myers. there's expectations about what they expect that character to be like. The end of Halloween Kills teases one direction, and they go off in a totally different direction that really, it doesn't fit or mesh very well with where things were left off in Halloween Kills. The focus on uh, Corey Cunningham and his developing relationship with Allison adds, again, it adds, you could argue, some depth to the sequel that most slasher films lack. But it also detracts again from the main source of tension and drama that should exist in the movie. If you rewatch, and I've watched Halloween Ends now a couple of times uh, since getting it on Blu-ray, if you rewatch that final climax, so after Laurie Strode has her confrontation with Corey, which feels very forced, uh, it's a storyline that doesn't feel very organic or natural. All of a sudden, Michael Myers just shows up. It's almost like the you know David Gordon Green and his creative team remembered, or the studio reminded them that you have to deliver on this particular ending. This is what we want to see. This is what the fans want to see. And it's almost like they kind of remembered that. Oh yeah, we're supposed to do this, and let's just shoehorn it in because it felt, again, very forced. How did Mike, Why did Michael Myers just kind of show up? It's a very rushed, uh, almost perfunctory uh, climax. It's not at all the same that we, uh, the same in terms of that cat-and-mouse confrontation that we got in the 2018 Legacy sequel. This just feels really abrupt. Uh, the less said about the procession that closes out the film with all the Haddonfield residents joining Laurie and Allison to take uh, Michael's body uh, to that dump and uh, the shredding machine, uh, the better. Some people may have thought it worked. I thought it was a bit cringe, uh, cringe-inducing, cringe a bit melodramatic. It does put, I guess, an, excla- an exclamation point on the end of Laurie Strode's story. But the inclusion of Corey Cunningham doesn't work for a lot of reasons. It doesn't work narratively. You could make the argument, in fact, that if they wanted to take this creative route, this kind of theme to their movie, rather than using a new character to do it, it might have been more effective if they used if they had used an existing character, and probably the the best choice would have been Laurie Strode's granddaughter, Allison, played by Annie Madachak. It would have made sense logically from a narrative perspective. Here is someone who is like her grandmother, been traumatized, lost her mother. The tease that perhaps. She's been, you know, quote unquote, infected with evil, much in the same way the, the sequel suggests that Corey Cunningham is. One, you've got a character that you've already invested in for not one but two movies. And there's also the emotional connection to Laurie Strode, who should really be the driving force of this final entry uh, to the trilogy. Scream, the Scream, uh, the Scream sequels, five and six, have, have toyed with this idea and done it quite well. Uh, so Melissa Pereira, Sam Carpenter, the, the reveal that she's in fact the daughter of, of Billy Loomis and the tease across two films that perhaps she has some of the same kind of evil embedded in her has made for some kind of a, some interesting narrative tension uh, at the very least. And it could have worked in Halloween Ends, but they went a different direction. I mean, at the end of the day, You do again, have to deliver on what fans expect. If you paid for example, money to see Metallica in concert, you can't march out Ed Sheeran and not be surprised that people are unhappy. It's just, it doesn't work, it doesn't fit. And as interesting as the risk was, and as much as you can appreciate wanting to deviate from a formula or a a template, it just did not work. And you end up with a pretty, what I felt was an unsatisfying story uh, that had been done so well in the 2018 sequel. One last bone to pick that I had with Halloween ends, and this might not be something that other uh, fans or even detractors of the, the sequel, noticed her or didn't like and I'll preface this criticism with Jamie Lee Curtis is a fantastic actress she's done a lot of great work she's done a lot of great work in the Halloween franchise it's always nice to see actors like Jamie Lee Curtis Kevin Bacon is another great example people who got their start in horror who aren't embarrassed to come back and do another horror movie you have to kind of there's a lot of appreciation for those actors for coming back. Again, Jamie Lee Curtis's performance as Laurie Strode in the 2018 Legacy sequels is is amazing. It's one of the better ones you'll find, if not the best for a a final girl uh, in a slasher sequel. But in Halloween Ends, there's some problems with the character, and it's not so much the performance, although at times it does feel like Jamie Lee Curtis is playing Jamie Lee Curtis and not Laurie Strode. Again, the problem probably goes back to the screenplay. So as nice as it is after 40 years and a handful of movies to see Laurie Strode in a happy place at the start and at the end of Halloween ends, from a narrative perspective, it doesn't make much sense. It's not logical. So if you imagine when we find Laurie Strode in the 2018 sequel, so 40 years removed from Halloween where she experienced this traumatic event, her friends are murdered, she's stalked, she barely survives, um, she's lost her daughter. Her daughter was taken away from her. She's become obsessed with sur- you know surviving, uh, learning to fight, learning to you know, her house is booby trapped. She's got a drinking problem. She's estranged from her daughter and now her teen, young adult granddaughter. The very thing that she has feared for 40 years actually happens. That is the man she believes will someday escape and, and seek her out does find her again, whether it's intentional or not, uh, isn't doesn't really matter. She thinks she finally has that cathartic moment of, of, of defeating uh, this evil and overcoming her trauma, but in Halloween Kills, by the end of that movie, she realizes that no, she did not successfully kill Michael Myers. He's gone on another killing spree and now her daughter, who she spent a good portion of her life training to protect her from this very thing, is dead. She sold From one perspective, she's failed. Even if it's five years later, I can't imagine anybody realistically being in a good place after that. The character should be pretty significantly traumatized. And it creates a lot of narrative kind of problems and tensions with logic within it. So, again, going back to the Corey Cunningham character and storyline... She introduces her granddaughter to this young man, and then for some reason, as the film progresses, decides she doesn't like that decision. Now he's the person she needs to confront instead of Michael Myers. And then when Michael Myers shows up, she doesn't seem particularly surprised he's there. And again, it's this kind of uh, connect-the-dots conclusion that really feels like it's there because it has to be, but the em- emotional investment at that point isn't there. Again, it's not a criticism of Jamie Lee Curtis. Great actress happy to see her in the sequel it's just there were beats with the character that just didn't feel quite right in a lot of ways again it kind of felt like she was just enjoying doing the sequel and playing herself to a large extent but that's a pretty minor uh criticism really the big problem again goes back to uh, the creative the major creative direction uh that david Gordon green a took with this particular sequel Before we close out this first episode of the Abominable Dr. Walsh podcast, I do want to end with a few what I'll call mini-capsule reviews. Uh, So for this episode, I'll focus just on two this time. There are full reviews available on the blog. first one came out last Friday. That's uh, July 14th. Uh, The Flood, starring Casper Van Dien. So if you grew up in the 90s, you might have some love for Casper Van Dien from his uh, role in Starship Troopers. It's always nice to see him in genre picks. uh, Another good one. If you if you appreciate his acting and are looking for something that you haven't seen a good hidden gem is, I believe it's the 2013 or 2014, The Pact. Uh, that's a pretty good one. Uh, the Flood is interesting in that it marries together two uh, different premises. One feels very much like John Carpenter's The Assault on Precinct 13. The other feels a lot like Alexander Aja's Crawl. That's the uh, Florida... the Everglades. It's the movie where there's the flooding waters and alligators end up in uh, a house basement. So in the flood, it's centered around a prison transfer. So there are some hired, I don't know if they're hired guns or mercenaries, uh, professional criminals looking to do a prison break. Uh, But the Correctional bus takes a detour, so it takes place in Louisiana. There's a huge hurricane. They want to get off the road. They end up stopping at a rundown jail in a small town that's understaffed. So you end up with inmates housed in the limited cells with a handful of correctional staff or guards and a sheriff and her deputy and several, uh, again, hired professional criminals who are now trapped as uh, several alligators rising up with the floodwaters begin to make their way inside the jail cell. So you get, obviously, that's the overlap with crawl the idea of disparate strangers, so inmates having to team up with guards, having to team up with criminals uh, to fight for their own common survival. Very much feels like Assault on Precinct 13, which itself was a remake of the classic Western real Bravo. Sounds like a great... You know The potential of this premise is fantastic. Unfortunately, there's one major glaring problem. If you're going to make a movie about a monster or a killer animal, whether it's a shark, an alligator, or a crocodile, you need to deliver a convincing shark, crocodile, crocodile or alligator on screen. The effects have to be there. You can only divert attention so much. Not everyone is Steven Spielberg who can hide you know, the, the villain of their film until... You know the third, uh, the third and final act, and the problem with the flood is that the special effects are are outright poor. The CGI alligators are not in any way, shape, or form convincing. This is the kind of special effects you'd find in a Sci-Fi Channel film, and in fact, probably. The closest comparison in terms of the effects is Sharknado, but the big difference is is Sharknado embraced the silliness. It's very much a ton-in-cheek film. It's fun to watch. It's meant to be silly, and it's meant to be stupid. The Flood takes itself very seriously, and in in that sense, it just doesn't work. Some of the action components that kind of play on the Assault on Precinct 13 uh, premise do work. So the director has some skill behind the camera. Some of the action scenes look quite good. There's pacing problems. There's not as much compelling content here to warrant the length and gaps between action. And at the end of the day, it's still a movie about big alligators making their way into a prison cell. There's only so much you can do to divert attention away from the fact that the alligators in no way, shape or form work. They just are not convincing. So for me, the flood is a a, a huge pass. Uh, One other film that I finally got to see that's been out in theaters for a while, but we couldn't get it in Canada, was Winnie the Pooh, Blood and Honey? So apparently, I guess the copyright to Winnie the Pooh and the various characters uh, expired and entered the public domain in early 2022. Now, Disney retains the images that we associate with Winnie the Pooh and those characters. That is, the movie had to change how they how they looked, but the basic characters themselves in the public domain. So the idea of Winnie the Pooh and Piglet uh, turning into feral slasher-like villains, um, I think actually has quite a bit of potent- potential if done right. Winnie the Pooh, Blood and Honey was not done right. Uh, again, one of the, the, the similar problems with the Flood is the tone uh, that the director takes the concept should be fun and silly and over the top. There should be lots of fun gore and blood spurting, and there should be that ton and cheek embracing of the fact that this is actually a really dumb idea, but we're gonna have fun with it. Uh, Kids versus aliens on Shutter, great example of a you know of a fun ton and cheek horror film that still works. The same with uh, last year's uh, Psycho Goreman, another good example of horror and comedy. Winnie the Poop, Winnie the Poop Blood and Honey takes itself too seriously. Again, there's too many gaps. Uh, the story ought, at times almost feels incoherent. It, it feels like just a, se- a set of scenes stitched together with the only com- common element running through it is that many of the Pooh and Piglet are killers. Uh, the innovative kind of bloodletting that you'll find in slasher films, not here. In fact, what you'll find is either boring kills or sometimes just really ugly, mean-spirited violence. It doesn't work, this is a huge pass. The last movie I'll review very quickly here is a mini capsule review. And again, full reviews are available on the blog. Just came out this past Tuesday. Uh, It's called What the Water's Left Behind, Scars. It apparently is a sequel to a film that was released in 2017, both uh, take place in Argentina, so they're Argentine slasher films. What sets these two movies apart is its setting, that is they take place in a real ghost town where apparently in the mid-1980s there was massive flooding, people had to evacuate. When the waters eventually receded, none of the residents actually returned, so the, the physical setting itself is actually quite unique and creepy. That's about the only unique aspect of Scars or the original. And quite frankly, if you haven't seen What the Water's Left Behind, you can still watch Scars. They're pretty much the same thing. The movie is basically yet another addition to kind of the, what I would call hillbilly horror that uh, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre started. It's the similar idea. Think of it like Texas Chainsaw mixed with some Ron Turn mixed with Saw. Uh, in fact scars actually recycles the the dinner table scene from uh, toby hooper's the texas chainsaw massacre it's your typical film of you know urban folks uh, driving out into the countryside or a remote area where they clash with locals until eventually they they anger some locals and go somewhere they're not supposed to be there's cannibalism there's creepy you know animal skull mask which masks which has also been overdone at this point there is literally nothing narratively uh, unique that this sequel adds um, from the very start of the film and it centers around a, a touring indie rock band who don't like each other very much And at the start of the film when one of the guitarists hooks up with a groupie she then casually invites the band out to the country or a remote area where her family owns a place and makes really good barbecue. At that point, if you don't know what's going to happen, you haven't watched very many horror movies, and there's very little deviation from what you would expect. That's not a problem in and of itself. Horror movies, no movie needs to reinvent the window, uh, reinvent the wheel, I should say. Derivative isn't a bad thing if you actually deliver on what you promised the, uh, the issue with. What the water's left behind scars is that it never really delivers on what it promises this type of movie needs um quite frankly very intense uh frightening violence and gore and while there the idea of some of the violent scenes is there it's a bit diluted or watered down it never hits uh, the heights of anything you would have seen in an eli roth film or a rob zombie film from the 2000s or the new french extremity so it's a bit watered down To be honest, at times, it's very dull. More problems with pacing. It's another example of a director thinking they have more movie there than they really do. So these are all three movies you can probably pass on. But I'm going to stop there. uh, And that's going to conclude our first episode. I'm hoping um, to have our next episode published for next Friday. That would be july 28th i believe and for our next episode i want to focus on friday the 13th so if you're aware at all of what's going on and there's plenty of stuff on entertainment sites the friday the 13th franchise has been kind of stuck in limbo uh, because of legal battles over copyright and and who owns what aspects of its mythology imagining if that if at some point that legal dispute was settled and we could get a new friday the 13th movie what i would like to look at is do we need another one that is in 2023 or 2024 is there a place in kind of the horror milieu for a friday the 13th movie or is the concept outdated and if it's not outdated and and we want another friday the 13th movie what should it look like what creative direction should they take But that would be next week's episode. Thank you very much for joining me this week, and I hope you'll be back for future episodes.